This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest once again is Mr. Sylvain Berneron. He is the creative director at Breitling. Sylvain, welcome. Hi, Elliot. Thanks for having me. So uh, the, the, the dirty secret is that this is our second take doing the show. We had a fantastic discussion only to learn that because of a technical problem, the recording did not go as planned. So this is take two. It's going to be even better, isn't it? Yes, yes, it will. And it's always a pleasure to discuss with you anyway, so it's fine. Yeah, this is why I remember when I first started getting into media production, I started noticing that everyone was obsessed with getting backups and make sure you got the audio, man. Make sure you got the audio. You get that? Did you get that? Because that's the worst thing in the world. Um, You know, I don't know how much media production stuff you do, but like you do something amazing and then if you didn't record it, oh my God, what do you do? Uh, (laughs) But that's... it's the I think it's the devil of all content creation. We have the same problematic at the design team that sometimes you lose some files as well, and you have to start oh, all over yes. again. So I can yes. only yeah understand. Well, it, it, it's you know what it is. It's more gadgets and things to enjoy, right? Because that's sort of the thing. Like when it's whether it's shooting watches, which is photography, recording podcasts, which has its own equipment. It's all about gear and tools and learning how to use it and. You know, you and I talk a lot about this, but this is one of the reasons that we're into watches is we can appreciate these uh, these more sort of functional, mechanical sides of life. And without that understanding and appreciation, it's really hard to be into watches, isn't it? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Very simple agreement. No, no thinking about it. You're like, yep, you're right. Um, so this is this is what the conversation is going to be about because we we know because we've done it already. We're going to talk about the steps that it, that you go through to get a watch made uh, at a company like Breitling. So it, it, it changes from company to company based upon size, how much money they have, who's in charge. These all have a big effect on it. But you're the creative director, which means that you have a huge role in making watches. And because you are so high level, you see so many phases of it, starting with a discussion at management to design to um, you know, prototyping and uh, creating these schematics, to production, to you know, testing and reevaluation, things like that. All of that falls under your umbrella. What have I missed? Yes, that's pretty much the, the recipe of the operation. So in order to make new watches, uh, there are two points that I'd like to, to discuss before, and I think that are actually, in, in terms of preparation, extremely crucial for the success of the operation first is the the big frame so in my case this is george care and my ceo giving us the product development team and design team the the right frame and by that i mean the resources and the time to operate no good product can emerge uh, if we don't have these two conditions first that means we need to have you're talking about the right situation at the company Yes, you need to have good working conditions, the right setup, uh, the right time to do it. Because if you squeeze the, the time frame to, to an extreme, uh, you go into shortcut land, and this is not how you want to, to make watches. Uh, because if you take sh- how often does that happen? Because we we go to the trade shows, we see 
products in various stages of development. There always seems to be a rush up to the trade show. You speak about this sort of the ideal way of doing it, the right way of doing it. This is where good watches come from. But in your experience, how often are those conditions lacking, right? How often are designers, even at most of the big brands, working under improper conditions? From my experience, I've been 15 years uh, in the industrial design industry, whether it is in the car industry or the, the watch industry. My guess is that it's more than 50% of the time that product development wow. teams get squeezed. to, to meet. Half the time, it sucks to design stuff. Yeah, because, I mean, you have to meet arbitrary deadlines, you know, that have been set uh, a year ago by someone who just wants to hit a number and he decided the product should be launched at that time. Uh, fine, uh, from a financial perspective, but automatically product development team have to take shortcuts to meet the deadline. So this is why uh, I want to insist on how blessed we are at Breitling that George understands that and he always said product is, is the first priority and if it's not good, we're just not going to launch it. And it actually So where happened. did he learn that? Where did he learn that? He's been at a, you know, he's been at a couple of brands. Well, he, you know, he, he worked like I did at the previous big group that I don't want to name where we had, where we lived <laughs> in shortcut land for, for years. So he knows uh, how hard yeah. it is to, to, to work like this. Well, this is what's interesting. George, who's a very clever guy and, and a wonderful leader, also has a reputation for not being as much of a, we'll call him a product guy. He likes watches, but he's not, he, he admits not being sort of a watch nerd. So how then does someone who is admittedly not a watch nerd, even though he does like a nice watch, how does he become so convinced of the importance of giving your department, for example, enough time to develop? How did that happen? So, uh, George is not someone that will, like you said, nerd into the details of an escape wheel or a balance wheel or the beveling on a bridge or something like this. But he is very product driven and he has tremendous flair when it comes to brand building and product building and, and bring, bringing those two together to, to bring a coherent and compact image to the general public. Um, so yeah. how, how does the ini initial phases of a new watch come about. We talked about Mr. Kern having an idea. Obviously, it all doesn't come from him. Before a watch is designed, it begins with, we'll call it a brief, which is a set of parameters, uh, both technical, aesthetic, price-wise, that you're supposed to sort of meet within, I'm guessing, or maybe there's some instances where it's just like, okay, Sylvan, go wild. But what begins the process and how how does that prompt or that brief um you know, become generated? Is it one person? Is it a team? Is it, is it a mix? Help people understand this. So it's always a team, of course. Uh, but before that, I'd like to roll back a little bit. So, so like I said, we need to have the right time and the right frame for it, the right resources. George is brave enough. It happened to us. We delayed the, the launch of the Chronomat two years ago by a year because we felt we were not ready. We had the board meeting, present the last prototypes, uh, everybody was like, mm, I'm not sure this is not it yet. How about we delay it for a year? This is a, a huge and very brave decision that we all took. I'm very happy we did it because we had time to finish the job and do it properly. But it's the kind of decisions that are, that is taken too, too rarely 
in the in the watch industry, and we do it at Breitling. When we are not ready, we postpone because we know a percentage of failure has to be accepted if you want to guarantee good work on the long run. So that's the first thing. Okay. Second thing, because when you start with a brief, my opinion is if you have the good people around the table and the right resources, you will succeed no matter what. So, so it's like a performance uh, as an athlete. When you show up on a race day, what will happen is just a consequence of, a consequence of your training. You know, it's, it's not about uh, how much sleep you had or how much, uh, how do you feel on the day. Your performance is entirely linked to how much preparation you did before. So it's the hidden part that counts the most in my book. Uh, and by that, I mean the second part after you work. So I, I'm very blessed to work for CEO, George, who gives me the right, right resources and the frame. And then the second part is to build a product department, including designers, product development people, technical office uh, that works very well. And that, that also requires a lot of work to, to find good creative, to bring them on board, give them the freedom and, and, the, and the space to express themselves. This is, uh, I mean, what, what you're describing is that like any factory that has machines, the design department is like a machine. And if you want good output from this machine, you have to make sure that the machine has, you know, room to operate and the right parts and the right operators and that this machine has to be up to a particular standard for it to deliver what the factory needs. Uh, again, I'm just trying to create an analogy, but it sounds like that's what you're saying. Yes, exactly. And, and it's not easy, especially in the watch industry, because uh, as you know, things tend to be done the way that they have always been done before, and it's very hard to change. The, the, the Swiss watchmaking industry is very stiff in this regard. Breitling is a brand that has almost 140 years of existence. So protocols, they're very well defined and, and hard to change. So one thing we did, my team and I, is to change the way we work. Uh, we do a lot of home office. Uh, I said it uh, in previous interviews, and it sounds uh, very unprofessional, but it's the reality. I'm the creative director <laughs> of Breitling, and I show up to work only on Mondays. Uh, why, it, why does that sound unprofessional? Is there a taboo in Switzerland that you have to, if you're not at the office, like you're, you're, you're a bad boy? It sounds unprofessional, uh, especially to, to my colleagues and my peers uh, in the first years because they were shocked. They were like, look, Sylvain, you have director position at, at the company. How can you imagine not to show up? You have to be there. You have to be visible and, and people have to see that you are digging deep and making things happen. If you're not there we might lose motivation or, or whatever. And, and So what do you tell them you're doing at home that is better there than at the office? First of all, it's a matter of productivity. So I save uh, the driving time. For information, Breitling is located in Grenchen. That's the headquarter where we develop the products. It's a very strategic position because we are halfway between Zurich and La Chaux-de-Fonds. So in terms of operation, it makes complete sense. But it's not a creative city. It's not a place where... Uh, Major metropolis, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's not a place well suited for creativity, especially due to my role. When I, when I go at the headquarter, I'm usually extremely solicited, uh, taken by people. People come to me every 30 minutes to ask for this, ask for distractions. that. Distractions. So, yeah, exactly. It's all distractions. 
And now I calculated it the other time I started working for BMW when I was 19, uh, sketching on average 40 hours a week for the past 15 years. That means I have 30,000 hours of sketching under my belt. So I start wow. to have a quite, quite a good understanding of what it takes to be creatively efficient. And I know that a good creative week is a week where you can have your computer on, your music, your paper on the desk, quiet, and you can let the flow run in your brain and get sketches done. This is what's efficient. If you have to stop yeah. and pick up the phone, go in a meeting every hour, you can't get the flow running. And this is how you lose creative well, you're, momentum. You're a creative professional. And if you're not a creative professional, it's difficult to understand how mood and emotion and context and environment is so crucial. Like if you're a factory operator, what you need to be is at the factory at your machine or your station or whatever, because otherwise you can't do your job. A lot of the creative process happens in our head mm -hmm. and we definitely need machines to record it, a computer, a keyboard, a mouse, you know, a pen and a pencil, uh, whatever it is. We, we need to have those instruments that can take what's happening in our brain, but ultimately our work is this thing that's happening in our head. And so it's in our best interest to find that environment where our heads can and if you are someone that employs a creative individual, hopefully you know that getting them in the right mood the maximum amount of the time is how to have them make you the most money, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, I think creative people need to be happy and feel comfortable because creating is about dreaming, first and foremost. You need uh, My favorite teacher at school used to tell me this sentence that really marked me. He was saying, Sylvain, be careful. There is a very fine line between creativity and stupidity. And, and, and by that he meant, <laughs> <laughs> because very often as a student, you, you start with a very stupid idea, which I think is, is, is the way to be creative, but you, you don't bring it far enough into re reality and therefore it stays stupid, so to speak. But nonetheless, in order to, to, to be extremely creative, I think that the, the base work, if you start with an idea that you say, oh, I will do this, it's evidence that everyone's going to like it, it won't be creative because in order to be creative, it, need not to, it needs not to exist yet. And by definition, it will be stupid. You know, like I take an example, building the Eiffel Tower in Paris. What a stupid idea. <laughs> To build a tower made well, entirely of metals. That, that the whole through. thing is to be creative, you have to do something that hasn't been done before. Mm -hmm. And when you do something that hasn't been done before, you have no idea if it will quote unquote work, what the acceptance level is. You, it, you, you step into the unknown, you take a certain level of risk. As is with all risk, not all of them are going to be successful. When you gamble, you're not going to win every bet. Hopefully you win some. And so the, the, the risks that, that fail those are the ones that make you look stupid. But to, when you're a creative person, you keep trying and hopefully you'll get a few that are like, oh, that would work. You must be smart. Well, in reality, you just tried a bunch of times. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay, so we're talking about the foundation. We got to get back on track because we, we got to get to watchmaking here. Mm -hmm. um, yes, so once you have... You have a great foundation, yes. Yes, once you have the frame, the resources, and the good people in place, which is already, as I said, in my opinion, 70% of the challenge, then we all sit around the table. I also should mention that all the people who sit around the table need to know the brand and understand its philosophy. 
because we are all here to serve the brand. Generations of people before myself and my colleagues worked at Breitling and we need to understand what they did, what's the, the philosophy of the brand in order to stay coherent in, in, in that timeline. And so we sit all of us around the table. So we have marketing, design, sales, product development, supply, finance guys. Uh, so it's usually big meetings and George, of course, uh, George will give us the main direction in terms of a very high level macroeconomic uh, perspective. It says, I need the brand to evolve in this or that direction. I want the, the brand to attract younger people. I want to strengthen or female uh, department. I want to uh, increase the sustainability of our products. I want to uh, get more esteem for the brand. Uh, therefore, I want to put emphasize uh, on the technical So he has a strategic need. He yes, has exactly. a goal. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, I have this goal. How would you get there? Exactly. And that's, and that's why uh, I'm so happy to work for George because he has this very high-level strategy. He sees the brand, he sees Breitling on the world map and how he wants to, to move the brand uh, on this global scale, because the biggest mistake, I think I'm not a CEO, uh, but, uh, I worked for CEOs before, uh, who comes in the design office and say, um, I'd love to have this watch with this dial, uh, and this movement. I think it would be amazing. Please do that. But doing this, he basically did the creative process on his own, which is not skilled for, and therefore the result will most likely end uh, in a non-coherent product uh, that could have been a lot better if this brief was not so restrictive in the first place. I want this to be a little bit less abstract to some of the listeners. You and I have been through this process, you obviously way more, more times than me, but I think that people could be confused as to how you go from this conversation as of, I want to watch the appeals to young people to you know a final design. Because ultimately, you have to go back and start imagining what it looks like, what it's made of. And, you know, of course, you have to have technical discussions about, you know, limitations and the movements and the price point. But you go from essentially a conversation with no visuals mm -hmm, exactly. to having to create a manifestation of something that will do something, whether that is dive to a certain depth, look great and green attract a particular consumer demographic, the brief could be different, but ultimately you take a bunch of words and have to, using your expertise and your good taste and everything, make that into a visual. And sometimes you're doing the designing, sometimes other people that you, you subcontract who are doing the designing. At the end of the day, you are accumulating a bunch of imagery and a lot of examples to come up with something nice and now you need to do it in your words. <laughs> yes. So I can give you a very precise example. For example, when George comes and say, I want uh, a collection that is more attractive to younger people because it's in the DNA of Breitling. Breitling is a very dynamic and technical brand. Give me something that I can give to a younger audience. So we start discussing. Marketing goes and says, ah, in terms of, the market, the product should probably be priced between four and a half and seven thousand Swiss francs in Breitling standards. 
then the, the, the finance guys would approve that. They say, oh, in order to make it work, we would need to build X numbers of pieces over that period of time. Um, and then the design team, we would go back in the archive, try to understand what Breitling has done. And, and this is precisely the exercise we did. We picked the top time collection, which, which was since the beginning targeted by the Breitling family to a younger audience. They wanted to build a, a chronograph made for very active people, people who were doing sports, who were racing, who were having this uh, back then new lifestyle, extremely dynamic that we still have to this day. The design was very 70s, 80s like, so we kept the roots, uh -huh. we modernized it. And then along the way came the concept of linking it to stories that would speak to a younger audience today. Like, for example, Deus, the clothing brand from Australia, Triumph, the English motorcycle manufacturer, and the vintage American cars that we have, like the Corvettes, the Shelby, and the Mustang. And all this together is, starts to be a, a very nice bowl of creative food uh, for the design team because you have uh, a skeleton of the project. So when you have to make decisions, you, based on what we agreed on, we know how to fine-tune the project to make it fit. Uh, and at the end, that landed into uh, our current top time collection, which has this weird counters, half square, half round. It has a lot of color touches and the graphic elements on the dial. The case is very... It's a fun odd. watch. It's a fun watch. Yeah, exactly. And this is how we translated this initial make me a young watch into a coherent product at the end. So that pretty much shows. The how do you narrow down the creative options? I mean, everything is a sandbox. Everything has, you know, almost unlimited possibilities. What is your process of taking these general, generalized ideas and prompts, you know, make me a, make me a watch that uh, young people in this country like? I mean, that could be anything. How do you go ahead and, and start to create forms and, and look at things? And then how do you eventually decide what to put the effort into developing and to continue developing until you have something to present to the team? In the case of the top time, I believe in order to be modern, to be young, to be dynamic, a lot of work has to be done on the dial. The top time DNA has a very simple case by definition. A lot of the work in order to be coherent has to be in line with the brand DNA. So we we push the boundary, the creative boundaries. So you start from an existing top time, you try to uh, deconstruct it and understand what makes it stand out in a in a watch tray. I think this is also a hard exercise. Designers need to understand what makes this watch special compared to the others. In the case of the top time, I think it's, like I said, the, the very architectural kind of built with an axe kind of design, which is uh, very strong. And, and a lot of designers would tend to try to make it more fancy, the case. But uh, I believe it would have been a mistake because you lose then the top time straightforward DNA then the hands and the dial. And the, the top time had, for example, the Zorro dial. They had uh, surfboard counters. So, so we had something to explore in this direction. But once we have these three elements, we lock them down in design committees. 
where we all agree, the whole team, we sit down and we say, what do we believe makes a top time strong? We agree on these topics and then the designer in charge goes there and, and make sure these three topics are actually emphasized in the design. And, and by designing, you have a lot of ways. Designers have a lot of cards in, in their pockets to, to trick the eye. You can make a watch look much bigger than it is. You can make a watch look much smaller than it is. You can play with these are all like These are all like learned, learned things. As you become a designer, you learn these tricks. Like None of this is actually very obvious. You just have to like figure this stuff out, right? Yes, yes. Uh, it, ha- it it needs also some some technical knowledge behind the, when it comes to uh, colorimetry and chromy ergonomics, technical right. uh, technical construction and surface finishing. For Is this example, why people copy vintage watches so often because they don't know how to do this stuff today? The next best thing they can do is copy somebody that did, which oftentimes was a long time ago. For sure. The, the, when you don't understand what you're doing, the easiest way is to replicate something you like. That's, that's the easiest way and the safest way to achieve what, 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 you, what you meant in the first place. Although I, I think it's a, it's a creative disaster in the sense like if all you can do is copy what has been done before, why the hell your clients should bother? But, but Sylvain, you've just, you've just talked about you know, at least 70% of the watches that are made today. You mean being copied? Well, I would say across the industry, probably 70% of the watches that come out in some way or form are mostly similar to the stuff that came before it. The amount of things that are truly original or like look different, of which there's many, but probably still represent less than 30% of the total. Yes, it's true. I should also mention something in the wider perspective for any watch designer that comes on the market today for a job, we all come at a point in the industry where it's like coming at the end of a monopoly game. Yes, the big brands are in place. They know what works, they know what don't. So they very safely secured their best sellers, protected them legally, uh, sold so many of them year after year that they pretty much owned own the design and therefore the, the margin left for true original creative ideas is actually paper thin very very thin very hard to extract and as a consequence if you want to come up tomorrow with a fresh design that no one has seen it will push you into creative into a creative space that my teacher at school would have called stupid <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, so so that's also something to consider, and I think, as you said, that's probably why, as a consequence, seventy percent of the new watches are heavily inspired by existing designs, simply because zillions of uh, shape iterations have been produced in the past. Uh, and we can take an example. For example, you t- you look at what uh, Maximilian is doing at MBNF. Uh, the horological machines, if you look at the shape, yeah, construction, sure. and everything, uh, this was a stupid idea to start with, but it brought it back into the creative land. But when you look how much effort, money, and dedication it takes to do that, 
at the end, of course, you have an original design, but you will hit 0.0001% of the market because the shape is so extreme and the budget it requires to, to, to acquire it is so extreme as well that you have the originality, but at the same time, why does it take so much money to be original? I mean, obviously, to make something new, you got to make new parts and things like that. But we, we, it seems like we've come so long in society manufacturing that we can make novel things very quickly. Other industries do it, and there aren't huge costs. I understand economies of scale play a big part, but you have to explain why it's so expensive to make like a new watch case. So... I know very well because I'm working on a side project on my own and I'm, I'm having these discussions very often these days. If you want to make a new watch case that is uh, not traditional, either in sickness or in shape, in construction or whatever, most of the time you will be, excuse my French, a pain in the ass for the supplier because he doesn't have time to, to spend weeks and months to develop something he has never done. The suppliers also have this very efficient approach to things. They will tend to produce in the larger number the things that they already know because you don't have the, the retro engineering to build. When you build something new, you will make all the mistakes. So we will agree on some things, they will start producing it, and after a week, they will call and say, oh, look, we struggle here and there in the making process. Can we please make concessions, make shortcuts, change the shape in order to have a better grip on the, on the quality of the piece. Uh, and these things take time, they take money, you have to throw some components away. And if you go into crazy shapes, you have to build from scratch all the tooling that goes with it. And that's what is extremely expensive. So, But does it need to cost that amount? I mean, no, in the era of 3D printing and things like that, Certain costs are going to go down. Obviously, if you want to have a nicely polished piece of metal, it's still going to cost a lot. But are these are these necessarily high costs, or is this are we within a future where doing this isn't going to be as crazy expensive? It will always uh, industrial tooling is expensive by definition because it's hard and steel. So it's not something. Three D printing is fine when you want to make fancy structures, but but because they are printed, they are not. Uh, they don't have a strength in their structure, you know, because it's pretty much powder layers right, on top of right. each other, and that is not. Uh, it doesn't have strength. Uh, even in the okay in the car industry, we used to use a lot of three D printed parts. It's good to see the volume, the definition, to to test. Uh, cinematics of assembly disassembly but you will never use them for stress test for example because it would break right away they are like uh, glass or compressed powder together right, 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 right. they don't bend they just break uh, so when you want no, that, that makes sense so okay so i want to i want to stay on track here because we have literally so much more to discuss <laughs> um okay so we're at the phase where you are you got a design brief you've made Drawings. I actually want to ask you a question right there. What is the split between hand drawing time versus you know computer uh, drafting time? It depends on each brand. Um, I should okay. say, for example, if you go into a jewelry brand, you go and work for Von Cleef and Apples, you will make a pièce unique, a diamond riverbed for uh, extremely rich clients. 
this will be drawn entirely by hand. You will start with a, a bag of stones that the gemologue comes and puts on your desk and says, these are the best stones I could find. Put them down on the table, measure them, try to make them fit together in a nice way, and then draw the riverbed uh, neck brace according to these stones. This is how it works. That's interesting. That's cool. Yeah, this is done ex- entirely by hand using paint. We call it gouache. So it's this extremely traditional way of painting jewelry on a, yeah the watercolors yes exactly so this is the the most traditional way of doing things and it works uh, when you don't have tooling involved because for example when you make jewelry like this the stones are from the mine extracted and cut uh, by the gemologue and the jeweler and then you have the the yes the jeweler will make the gold structure or the platinum structure whatever to 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 hold the stones together so this is very traditional craftsmanship that requires little or almost non uh, digital mach- machinery and on the other hand of the spectrum you have brands like brightling omega rolex that have um very strong industrial power and structures behind and want to replicate the highest possible level of quality in a large number of pieces, all all while having the highest level of quality possible. And there, in order to do this, everything is uh, digitalized. Uh, We use only CNC. For example, a Breitling watch is uh, the finishing on the case is half done by hand because we even find way of machining that are highly technical to make the diamond polish finish on the cases done by hand. Sorry, done with a machine because it doesn't vibrate. Uh, but I'm getting sidetracked here again. Uh, my point is, so at Breitling, uh, we draw exclusively on the computer because we want to have vectorized files that are precise to the micron that we can send to the case supplier, we can send to the dial, to the handmaker. And yes, so we work entirely. Uh, N- not even in concepting? Like it's always 100% on a, on a tablet? No, so, so each designer has a sketchbook where he sketches, uh, but he would usually be between meals or in the train or at work even sometimes where we do, all of us do it, little scribbles to find some ideas, check some proportion ratios. Uh, draw some stupid things on the sides um, so of course we do this but it's not uh, included in the deliveries for the brand you know you know what are I there mean? some yeah are there some brands that are maybe lower volumes that still have a combination of hand drawing and and you know cad schematics or i i understand that pretty much all manufacturing now has a computer element i mean this is necessary but are there ones that just for stubbornness don't you know you know how the, you know how brands can be yes i think so some some brands still do it but it has to be extremely low volume and if you for example go to a case supplier only with a hand sketch you can do it of course but the case supplier will do the digital work for you so he will build the technical plans for you and you will say yes that feature not my sketch but no matter what, at some point, a digital step will be done. And because we want to be entirely, we want to own the, the creative craft at Breitling. This is why we make the technical construction and we 
send it to the supplier and we say, this is how we want you to build it for us. Right. So whether a company has their own factory or has various suppliers, which is tends to be the case, there is a particular phase where the project moves from the creative team to the technical team. Um, usually, even if you don't make your own stuff in-house, you have an in-house technical team, like a technical head that basically you know, uh, is, is the master of all the CAD drawings and things like that. But at some point, it gets sort of handed off to manufacturing. And you as a creative director have to go through all this process. But talk a little bit about this transfer. The departments have different cultures. Um, they, they value different things. Things can go wrong. They can even have fights. But talk a little bit about the transfer of the watch creation project from the, I'll call it the design team to the manufacturing team. Yes. So in, in between the designer and the case maker, if we take the example of a case, you have, of course, the technical department. In my case, we have an internal Breitling technical department. Each designer works during weeks with his technical guy. They work together behind the same screen to align a sketch with uh, a panel of technical rules so that we have a technical construction that both meets design and technical requirements. This is one of the crucial parts of the process because a good sketch is worth nothing. I've seen in my career extremely talented designers that could draw things that would blow your mind, except you could only make these things in science fiction movies because they completely forget uh, the technical requirements in order to make physics it. in other words yes <laughs> yes and, and this is this is we have this discussion in the design teams very often i tell them look guys we can't bend the laws of physics it's exactly what you just said so even if i give you 0.2 millimeter of freedom make sure you place that line or that surface at the best hedge of the spectrum, even if the spectrum is very tight, because that's the difference between a very nice watch at the end that has been considered in the tiniest details and, and between a, just a random watch where the lines have been placed just to hit technical requirements. Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch, and I've been using eBay to find watches for over 20 years. eBay is one of the world's largest marketplaces for timepieces. A luxury wristwatch is sold on eBay every seven seconds. And did you know there isn't any safer place to get watches? All luxury watches sold on the platform are covered by the industry's most robust customer protection policies. What makes eBay so confident is its exclusive authenticity guarantee service, which has a third party physically check each watch before it gets to you. In the United States, that's done through Stolen Company in Ohio. And among other things, it means that fakes are never an issue. eBay is also a great place to sell your watches, but you probably already knew that. Do what I do and check eBay before all of your next watch purchases. You have to play this game sometimes, I'm imagining, between the technical department who's involved in manufacturing, the design department. The designers have a vision. They want it their way. And they have a good reason for it, because if you just change a little thing on the design, the beauty can go away. This is a very real danger in, in messing with a watch design. It's not superficial. Every little change matters. And maybe you don't have the vision to realize it before you produce the thing. But once you see it, you're like, oh, yeah, that, that finishing definitely matters. It makes a big difference. So what tools do you use with the 
technical department to make sure that they execute the design team's vision as close as possible? First, um, we are very lucky at Breitling because we have a technical department who likes watches. They are not just plain engineers who would construct a watch like they would construct a phone. Or So these guys have deep roots and understandings. They went to microtechnic schools in Switzerland where they've been taught what good watchmaking is. So they understand and they like the products. They all wear watches. So we are on the same boat to start with. We all want to make cool products. But of course, being engineers, they tend to make decisions on very pragmatic uh, um, thinking, forgetting sometimes that we buy these things first and foremost because we like them and they move our heart and they give us emotions. But being uh, a watch which which won't save a life is, is just a piece of jewelry that gives time, in my opinion. There is not a right and a wrong answer. So when a designer and, and a technical constructor don't come to an agreement, Usually we escalate it. So it comes to me and to Massimo, the head of the technical office. We sit down together with our teams and we say, look, what is the problem? So we, most of the time you have on one side a designer that is completely in love with this project. He's been in it for eight weeks, night and day, so to speak, because that's something I should mention. The, the job of a creative, I'm sure you know this, Ariel, very well in your job as well. You have the, the working hours from, let's say, a nine to five, classic job. But when you go home, it's still on your shoulders. It's still in your head. It's still in your head in the weekends. And when you struggle to create something or to come up with something good, you're usually a jerk with your family during this period. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you know this. Yeah, And this is something that uh, the other teams at work, they don't understand this. Sometimes... I show up at work, uh, you know, Monday morning and I look very cloudy and people tell me, oh, what's up? Did you have a wrong weekend? I was like, no, no, the weekend was fine. It's just I'm trying to click the gears on, on that collection. I don't know how to solve it yet. Just leave me alone. Yeah. So I need to discuss with my guys. We need to, to and I look like a weird guy sometimes for these reasons. But creative people know this very well. It's the, the mental weight of having to come up with a creative idea in a consistent manner uh, can be extremely tiring sometimes. And it's something that is not, in my opinion... You never get to turn off. There's no vacation from it either. Yes, exactly. And and it's something that is not very well explained in, in creative schools in general. I think uh, students would benefit some sort of guiding or training for that process. because What would that class be called even? I think it, would, it should be called... Uh, Hygiene de travail in French, in French, we would say it's uh, the, the, the rituals you have to put in place to, to, to frame your mind in order to be efficient. It took me 10 years as a designer to understand one thing. When it's work time, you work. And when it's, when it's play time, you play. Like lifestyle methodology. Yes. Because if you, if you, let, it, if you let the creative process be on, Every time at intense manner, you will be a ghost for your friends and your girlfriends. I had this problem with my previous girlfriends. I could, you know, I was working, for example, at BMW doing this show car, show bike. Uh, you have eight weeks to crack the most amazing design you can have. And in the middle, it was like my birthday weekend and my girlfriend organized something. 
and I would show up in this weekend with her. She prepared everything. It was, uh, you know, like it, it really meant something for her. And I was a complete ghost. Yeah. Like we go for dinner. All I have in my <laughs> mind is what if, if I place this surface here and I twist it like that, or if I uh, shift the proportion ratio, what would that be done? And, she, and I have someone at the table in front of me and she goes like, hello, do you still love me? I'm here. <laughs> and, uh, and so that is something that is, I think, very special to creative jobs in general. And when you are a technical constructor or product development guy, when you finish at five or six, usually it's a lot easier to go home and cut and say, look, the, the file is in the computer. I achieved step one, two, three. Tomorrow we'll do four, five. It's under control. It's fine. Here's how I try to explain it, that being a creative is an inherently inefficient kind of job. Like you can't just put the hours in, like you can sit there and try really hard for eight hours and not get anything done. Or you can have like an amazing four hours and that's like two months worth of work. It, it's, exactly. it's not about hours. It's about the ability to focus, which you need to do a lot. When you focus on one thing, you can't focus on other stuff. We're only human. And, um, it's the ability to be very selfish in your own thoughts. You literally need to be self-absorbed by 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 definition you are self-absorbed yes. with the thoughts it's not because you don't like other people but because you're busy working and if you're in the mood for it if the brain chemistry is right and you're like on it and you're in problem solving mode it's it's worthwhile financially to, to to like i'm gonna go with this for a minute i need to i need to process this and uh, there's that old trope about the writer that carries the notebook and like oh when i have an idea i just have to write it down like it's kind of like that, but apparently society is more forgiving if you uh, if your craft is writing. If you need to be in a computer or hide yourself away to studio or something like that, society doesn't forgive you. You're being a horrible, selfish person, right? Yes, yes, yes. And and but I think you being a very experienced, creative person, uh, you just probably made a shortcut because you said it doesn't matter if you spend eight or four hours; you should spend four good hours. You say that because you're an experienced person and you achieved the mind transformations that we just talked about. Uh, so for students, if young people listen to us, in the beginning, there is no shortcut. You have to put the hours. If you want to become a professional creative in any field, I highly suggest you to put your phone in snooze mode and to draw minimum eight hours a day or write or, or compose music or do whatever you want to do. Well, but you have so, to put so the hours down to acquire let's be, the let's be honest. If you're looking for shortcuts, you probably are already at the phase where you don't like what you're doing, which is maybe a sign to do something else. Yes, but, but sometimes people take shortcuts without even noticing, simply because they haven't seen enough things before. They, they haven't spent enough But they're enough not curious enough. That, for me, I, I hear what you're saying, and you're being very nice to those people. But again, if you truly obsess over something you know exactly how much time it takes to be good at it. Yes, you may not want to do it, but you know what it takes. Yeah, and, and but at the end, what, once you master these skills and you have learned the technical knowledge, you have the technical skills to draw properly, you understand how things are, are made and produced and everything, you can do like you just said, take four hours, switch off the phone, switch off the calendar and come up with something amazing. Because you master all these skills before, so now you can sort of speak improvise. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, it's creative. when you know yourself. It's when you know yourself. This yeah, is, a, this is important. 
Okay, so let's go back to creating watches. <laughs> um, we were at the point where there's a handoff to the technical department. How much are you now involved, right? You're the creative director and you have to speak to management, constantly updating them, I'm sure. I'm imagining you're that you're essentially their liaison with the watch development process. You have mm-hmm. to speak with the design team because at some point there's something always going on in design. You have to speak to the technical team because at some point there's always something that they are, you know, engineering into a, a, an industrializable product. Um, you're speaking probably to marketing, I hope, mm-hmm. about how yeah, they sure. talk about the watch, maybe even after sales. And I'm imagining that you're cycling through all these conversations all the time while at the same time having to do the escape that we just talked about where you go and you seclude yourself to actually do some design work. Does your job allow you to structure that or are you just kind of frantically juggling those things all the time? It's a, in my position, especially it's a very schizophrenic job because as you said, on one side, I need to report to an administrative structure. So I need to go in board meetings. I need to go in financial meetings, marketing meetings and deliver all the rational of, of what my team and I are doing. Um, and I have this conflict sometimes. I have colleagues who tell me, bring me the designer. I need to, to explain him this. Yeah. You guys don't understand. <laughs> bring me the designer. I don't want to talk to Bernard. Oh, I want to talk to the guy who draws the stuff. And I tell to everybody, including George, because I had this discussion with George. If you want to talk to design, you talk to me. And it's not because I want to hide my people from them and keep kind of all the, the interaction for myself. It's because I know how these rational interactions can be um, demolishing for creativity. And it's not because it's hard discussions or anything. It's just because when you go in these meetings, you, you, you all of a sudden understand all, all the harsh and, and George, George is cool with this, right? We, we had some fans in the beginning. It was like, bring me the goddamn designers here. I want to talk to them. And I told, and I told him, and, and, and God is my witness. I told him, look, George, you gave me the responsibilities. This is my call. Now, if you want to handle the design team, you do it. You gave me the responsibility. That's the beta <laughs> I've taken. And trust me, it's not easy to do. It's not easy. George is not someone you can easily say no to, but yeah. we've worked together for a long time. He knows I'm, 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 entirely devoted to each cause and, and I work hard to deliver. And sometimes I do things that look extremely sketchy from the outside, but actually produce results. And this is one of them. Here's what surprises me about that. Mr. Kern has had an enormous amount of interaction with the world of Hollywood. He likes it. He's interested in it and a lot of other creatives. And in the world of Hollywood, there's a lot of respect for the creative process. So whatever crazy thing someone needs to do to get a a script done, a song done, practice done, whatever, they go and they do it. So I was just imagine that he'd be exposed to that enough times by now to be a lot more cool about it. Or am I wrong? Nobody cares. He cares so much. That's that's, that's the good thing. Uh, it's a great thing because I have a CEO who cares a lot about the product. So he wants to be involved. He wants to get his hands on. And that's amazing. And that's what why Breitling is so successful. Uh, he should have gone to their homes. He should come to your house for a little house call. Say hello. <laughs> show me what you've been working on. Should I take my shoes off? He's really passionate. So I'm sure sometimes uh, we could consider that. But uh, coming back <laughs> to my point, if I take a designer, a, a good designer, 
and I bring him into a board meeting for four hours where everyone is wearing a suit. We discuss numbers, we discuss timelines, we discuss investments, we discuss all these things. The consequence is you leave that room completely frightened of how harsh is it to run an industrial business on that scale. We are talking hundreds of millions of of dollars. How are you supposed to go back to your desk, forget about this, and come up with a stupid idea? Nobody would do it. yeah. Because once you, you know what's going on, the default mode is to go into safe mode and you would, you would make defensive decisions, you know, because you, you think, why wow, there is so many jobs, so many, so much money involved. I can't screw up. So I will make a safe decision. And yeah, this is sense. why, this is why I've built a thick um, bubble of glass around my team so, so that they can stay in Wonderland. And I escape sometimes going to a board meeting quickly come back because that's not what I'm made for. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I you, you have sure. to seclude the talent. The creative people need to be sequestered away. There's a lot of companies that have um, the creative team in their own office. And I mean, we talked about how um, Citizen in Japan has a cool, hip little location in a neat part of Tokyo, and that's their creative center. And it's nowhere near their factories by design and you have that uh a lot of different companies where the design team is also car companies do it all the time yes you know audi has a design center here in malibu in 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 california and it's in a really chic location and people are supposed to be inspired by the lifestyle and it's 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 nowhere near an audi uh you know factory or anything like that um so i mean it, it makes total sense to have the design team like across the hall from like, you know, the CNC machines. It's preposterous these days. Yeah, but it's hard to achieve because on a day-to-day basis with your colleagues, you you tend to get some remarks like, ah, being a designer is a good life, huh? You show up only when you want and and you show up two hours a day, then you go home and from the outside, it looks a bit like a zoo. And I understand when when you are an engineer or supply the, uh, chain the egalitarian guy. spirit is very strong in switzerland that is true there's a, yes. a big desire for equality fairness humility yeah and and i had these fights <laughs> i had hard fights like two hours long discussions with people who came to me and said look silva i had enough of your chaotic way of working you're building a zoo at breitling Uh, how can I explain to my guys that you guys can do what they want? And this is pretty much what it comes down to. I I would just be like, you know what? Let's have you guys do their job for a week. Okay. See what you guys come up with. Okay. And ask yourself why all these brands that you make fun of make the same thing year after year, can't seem to come up with any good ideas and go out of business. It's because guys like you screw with the design team. Trust us, it's, it's, it's not more decadent than it needs to be. They just have a different job than you. Go switch with them. See if you can do it. I mean, that's what I would say. Yeah, yeah I, I try to, that's what I should say, but I try to be a little bit more diplomatic. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and I just ask them to trust me. And, and thank God, now I've been five years into this position and, and the numbers speak for the design team in the sense like, Every so you, launch, can, you can justify it now. You can justify yeah, exactly. it easily. Every launch we did proved to be a, a better, to, to make more successful the brands and the previous generation. So by numbers, we are proven that this works. 
many people still don't know why it works, but because the numbers are good, they leave us alone. But my two first <laughs> years at Brightling, I had to call George every month and tell him, look, this guy is giving me big troubles. What do you want me to do? Should I give up or should I? And he would actually help me. And George saved me from multiple conflicts during the two first years every month. I kid you not. Okay, so let me stop you here. First of all, congratulations that you were able to succeed in this area. It's hard to do. But this is the point I want to make. It's preposterous that you have to fight so hard to just have an amenable environment to design. Not, I mean, like, you're not you're talking about a good environment to design, but you have to fight for it. It's not like it was handed to you. It could have been. The problem is in this area, not everyone is a fighter like Sylvan who will stand up for what he believes in and will, will you know shelter the people underneath him. Like not everyone's willing to do that. In fact, most people are not. So it's interesting that within the culture of the creative luxury watch industry, to be creative is such an uphill battle even when it actually has been proven to help the bottom line. And that is a very strange contradiction in the space. And it's only, only because of the fight in, in managers, in creative professionals like Sylvan, that good stuff gets done. I mean, you know, we like to talk about Jean-Claude Biver a lot. I mean, he is a, he is a fighter. Listen to how he speaks. He is, mm -hmm. he is aggressively, you know, shouting marching orders stand behind me army this is what we're doing and we're doing it now this is our goal if you if you're not on the same you know side as me quit and leave right now i mean this is a typical uh, a type of militancy that you have to see in order to get things done in this space and i'm not saying you know why but i just think it's worth pointing out that having an effective design team still requires constant justification Yes. And one advice I should give to, to all, my, all our peers, the creative people in general, the best decisions you can make when you take a new job is not to choose the mission, is to choose who you work for. And, and I remember when I left Richemont, many people told me, what, you, you're going to work with George again? Are you crazy? Because George is known for, for, be, for being a very intense person. Yeah. Sure. You, you get calls, you get texts seven days a week. The pace is extremely high. The demand is very high. The speed of execution has to be top-notch. It's not a job that you can just take and have multiple hobbies and another life on the side. It's, that's not how George operates. It's full speed all the time. So a lot right. of people told me, why? Like, like, why would you make that decision? And I told them, all of them, I, I told them, I know... I'm going to have to sweat, dig deep. It's going to be hard. I know it. But George is someone who has the courage uh, to make to move big things in companies. He has the means of his ambitions and he will give me the resources to do it. This is the best decision you can make as a creative. Because if you work for someone who is not willing to defend what you're trying to achieve, because right now you say, ah, oh, Sylvain fought for it and this is why it succeeded. It's not true. I went multiple times in George's office and say, I'm stuck. I screamed all I could. No one listens. So now either you save me or we will fail. And he has to pick up the phone. He usually, I have to speak two hours. He speaks 30 seconds and he says, leave him alone. Thank you. Ciao. <laughs> you know? I feel and like I want to send Mr. Kern like a bouquet of flowers. Like, thank you for doing what you do. Like, I, I feel very appreciative 
that he is at the helm of the brand. He's always been a very dynamic person. And as I've gotten to know him, know him more over the years, I've liked him more and more. Um, he, he is a quirky character, but, you know, who isn't in the space that makes any difference? Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's great to hear all these backstories. Obviously, he's been on the show. I think we need to have him back soon. We're, we're over time right now, so I think I want to have, like, one more area of questioning about how watches are made. And this is the critical time before you make a final decision to sell in the market, right? You're, you're, you're working with, I'm sure it's a team-wide thing. You're looking at prototypes and things like that. You're making the decision like, okay, do we make it? Do we not make it? Who gets to make that call? And how much opportunity do you have to be like, you know what, guys, this is good, but it's not great. Can we redo some of this stuff? You know, talk about the decision to continue with the design and maybe not send it to market. You mentioned that that one of the watches you delayed for a year because of that. But explain mm-hmm. a little bit about how that works and who gets the ultimate say that something is going to move full steam ahead. Um, explain some of that context and, and where you as a creative director, um, how do you step in there? The good news is I think we all have this. When you see an object for the first time, you have what we call as creative the three seconds of truth. So I, I give you in your hand any manufactured object. It doesn't matter if it's cheap, expensive, complex or not. You open your eyes, I give you three seconds. You will be able to tell me if you like it or not. And then after that, these three seconds, I can tell you whatever I want. If you decided you didn't like it, you won't like it still. Do we agree on that? Okay. No? Oh, it doesn't happen to you? Like, I give you a watch, you say, oh, I don't like it from a gut feeling. Then I can spend 30 minutes to explain you why I think it's good. It doesn't matter. You still won't like it. Um, oh. I, I'm a little bit weird. I'm a little bit weird. I, I, I agree that works for most people. There are definitely watches that are terrible and I can tell right away. And there's a lot of watches which I like them right away and I always like them from the first second. But there are certain designs that I don't develop a relationship with at first and I know it and I give it time and either I still don't like it or eventually grows on me. But I'm very comfortable being uncomfortable with the design and not not figuring out what I want to feel about it for a while. Yeah, just because you're an experienced creative. Again, that's a professional <laughs> deformation. Of that doesn't count. If you ask to a, a, a normal person, uh, uh, usually after three seconds, they will tell you yes or no. So coming right. down to your initial question, usually once the, the prototypes are completed, we review them under daylight. We go outside, we look at the pieces. So if you drive around Brightling, you might see a board committee outside walking with watches in their hands. That's what we do. <laughs> and, and then we decide from a very gut feeling. Usually I explained what kind of creative process we did, what is our creative intention and how we think we're going to hit the target. But at the end, it's a very gut feeling driven decision. Like George say, yes, I believe in this. No, I don't. And and it's marketing, operations, design, sales, and George who make the decision. But usually it's a unanimous decision all the time. I, I don't recall a single non-unanimous decision. Either we all want to go for it or, or nobody does. And how often do you get to the prototype phase and, and everyone's like, oh my God, this sucks. I mean, did you know it going in? Because oftentimes you don't really know how you're going to feel about something until it's done. I guess the question is, you've been doing this a bunch of times. 
how often do you surprise yourself and either like something that you didn't think you were going to like or hate something that you thought you were going to like? So being surprised, liking something never happened, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, the surprise of not liking something that uh, I thought would be nice in reality happens, I would say, 20% of the time still. Okay. that's that's. I would think even more because, again... The difference between a CAD drawing, even the best ones in real life, is still very big. I mean, there are some designers that seem to live and breathe in CAD. I know there's some sophisticated modeling software out there with light and, and textures and things like that. And it's great. It's great stuff. But I'm sorry, it still doesn't even come close to replicating real life at all. The, the software just doesn't really know how to replicate too many variables. I don't know. Yeah. Speaking of which, yeah. I, could, I could mention one thing. You know, usually we have, you probably seen some, it's this 3D printed plastic uh, watch heads that you see in all the pictures of design yes. team development. Yes, very popular but, now. Yeah. When I came at Breitling, I said, you can throw the machine away. I'm not using this. People were like, yeah, but what do you mean? So, so you don't <laughs> make prototypes? And I say, yes, we're going to make prototypes, but I want steel prototypes. I don't want plastic prototypes. You know, because I, I agree, they never look anything like. No, I mean, you get the don't. shape, sure, but you just don't. You don't really know if it's going to be a good watch. You're like, okay, I guess that's interesting. I still have no idea if I'm going to like it metal. Not a clue. And, and, and I remember because when I came, uh, Yvon, if you hear this, uh, we are great friends now. But that's the first thing I told him. I told him, look, you, we can throw this machine. I don't make plastic prototypes. And he told me, <laughs> it cost me. Am I supposed to spend millions in steel prototypes just to please you because you don't want to project yourself with the, the 3D printed stuff? And I said, it's not for me. I don't need the prototypes. It's in order for all projects to succeed and be truly validated because what happens with these uh, plastic prototypes, you bring them in a boardroom where you have non-creative people. They, have, they don't have this capacity to project themselves. They say, yes, yes, that's what I want, because in reality, they have no clue. So you validate yeah. that. <laughs> you make tools and pre-production stuff. And when the real piece lands on the table, they go like, wait, what? That's not what I asked for. That's what happens. So I'd rather spend the money. Uh, we're, we're, on this, we're on the same page. Okay, so you make sure that they have... Um, a real metal, you know, prototype before you go into the various stages and you have a complete prototype that the committee decides. Now, where do you come in next? Does your, does your job end there and the rest of it is for, you know, sales and service? Um, no, once we agree, uh, we have all the, a designer leaves the project once the tooling is finished and we hit the, the, the production button. So when it transfers to development to operations, this is the final line for a designer. But once we okay. agree in a boardroom to do that this prototype is good and we want to produce it, the designer still has six months of work with the product development team to make sure to control all the files, to make sure they are 100% right to our initial request because suppliers sometimes to make it easier, to make it faster, tend to, to modify you things. You got to check, 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 and always you check. Know, last discussion I had two weeks ago, uh, we are making a bezel that has numbers on it. The numbers are uh, stamped into the metal. And the supplier send, send us some plans where he decided not to stamp them, but to mill them. And I said, this is an absolute no-go. I want it to be stamped. 
he goes like, but why? It's the same, blah, blah, blah. And I'm quicker like this. And, and stamping <laughs> is more expensive. And I tell him, there is one big difference. If you take a, a number, if you stamp it, the edges of the number are going to be 90 degrees. If you mill it, I have the milling radiuses on the typography and you modify entirely the font that we actually built for that model. So that's why <laughs> I wanted to stamp it. And he goes, I kid you not, I had 30 seconds of blank on the phone. He goes like, oh, oh, wow. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, wow. Stamp. He was cool about it. <laughs> Most of the people were like, screw you. That's great. I mean, you're persuasive. You know, you know your audience there. But this is why this is why people don't like creatives because the exactitude of the vision, how precisely you render the the idea that you have is directly related to how much you can please the creative, right? Like we want the exact thing in our minds, the exact thing and not not a micron off, not anything off, and we don't always get our way. But that's how we're, we're structured, right? We're structured to want exactly what we want. Oh, but, uh, and, I, and I'm the first one to make, to accept uh, deals uh, and to make compromises when it comes to tooling, to efficiency, to physics, uh, to sicknesses, etc. I never negotiate this because I would bring us into being d- diva designers in the bad sense of it. <laughs> uh, but when I they know... Exist. They exist. Yeah, but they are hard to work with. And, I, and on the long run, I'm not sure if, if that's extremely efficient because you can you can press a, a development team once, being a jerk all the way and say, shut up, do what I want, blah, 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 blah. But then people hate you and you don't achieve anything you know, the next time. So I always try to be uh, comprehensive. Sometimes my guys are pissed at me because they say, oh, Sylvain, you gave up. I mean, why did you leave this 0.3 millimeter? And I tell them, look, guys, I mean, people have to make these products at the end. (laughs) (laughs) So if they break five out of 10 bezels on the production line because we didn't want to give this three-tenths of a millimeter, that matters. Yeah. And and I think you should understand that. And they go, oh, wow, okay, okay, okay. And, but, but on the other side, like I told it's you, hard though. It's hard though because when you sacrifice aesthetics, even if it makes sense practically, it still sacrifices aesthetics. Yes, but Brightling products have to be reliable, and they have to 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 be. I mean, we have a good reputation of being extremely. But reliable you're selling peak beauty. This is luxury. You're selling someone for many thousands of dollars an item which is meant to project their hopes and their dreams and their status and the representation of self. It, the better you can do it, the, the happier they are. So <clears throat> that 0.0001% of refinement, it does make a difference in the market. It's a very competitive market. Yeah, I agree. But at the same time, if you buy that stupidly gorgeous watch yeah, that every com- technical compromise has been done on to make it look super sexy, you buy it and two, week, two weeks after it's broke, because uh, it doesn't uh, hold Are you thinking of anyone specific? (laughs) No, 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 I don't. But all I'm saying is it's a dangerous game. It's a very dangerous game. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, mean, the the reality is you go back to the drawing board and you say, we need to make something which is beautiful and technically feasible. I mean, that is the the ideal solution, right? Yes, it is the ideal solution. And and, and, uh, I had this discussion with Max. He calls them boomerangs. He says, if you're a creative, you can make boomerangs. It means you make the, the sexiest product ever. 
it sells like crazy, goes out of the factory, but it comes back two weeks after in after sales because oh. it's broken. <laughs> Uh, you know, that, so you which is a real that. thing. Yeah, you can do that for a year or two, but at the end, I have our next topic already. Our next topic <laughs> for our next show. Now that you're gonna like this, it's gonna be how you evaluate customer feedback. So those boomerang products, like you, the salespeople, I guess get the first word. They hear about it. That translates to you. I want to talk here about how you go from receiving feedback to integrating that into the next products and things like that. So that's mm-hmm. going to be our next discussion. Yeah, yeah, okay. My pleasure. Would be amazing. Anything you want people to know about? I know that obviously you can't talk about upcoming projects. There's something you're working about that you're exciting about. I just like to leave things on in a, uh, an exciting note uh, where people look forward to what's coming up next from the brand. So for Breitling, uh, in, in, in the big scope of things, at the end of 2024, we will have finished our first chapter, which is rebuilding the entire portfolio from A to Z. And from 2024 and after, we will enter a second layer of depth for the brand where we will increase in complexity. We've been working on a bench of highly complicated in-house movements for Breitling. Uh, as you know, this project takes from four to five years of development and productions and everything. So it will come to fruition uh, early 2025, and I can't wait to show you. But uh, it will it will be an exciting times because now we have uh, more movements, stable collections to work on. So it's an accumulation job now. We we can it's a virtuous circle in the sense we can build on successful collections more complex pieces so it's we will be very interesting i don't i don't see any sign of us running out of ideas before 2030 minimum (laughs) wow okay so we have about 10 years of new designs coming that's good because it's a real risk sometimes brands have a couple of good years years and then they uh and then they lose steam so that's very good to know um, I hope uh, uh, people forgive us for going a little bit over time, but this was a great discussion. My guest again has Mr. Sylvain Berneron from Breitling. Sylvain, thank you so much. Thank you, Ariel. It was a pleasure as always. Thank you to the whole uh, ABTW team. It's, uh, it's amazing and we are thankful to have you guys in the industry. I think you're a fantastic vector to bring information to, to the new uh, enthusiast. I think it's, uh, so thank you guys for, for what you do. It's amazing. Very kind of you to say. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com.